Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Plume Books, publisher of the novel Pretty by Jillian Lauren. Jerry Stahl, author of Permanent Midnight, has this to say about Pretty, quote, Pretty is the not-so-pretty, utterly riveting, non-stop, frantic, and compulsively readable saga of B.B. Baker, a heroine who knows her way around a serious binge. The prose, at times, drives with such ferocious urgency that the words seem not so much written as willed onto the page. Pretty stands out as a triumph of survival testimony. End quote. That's Pretty, the new novel by Jillian Lauren, available now from Plume. It's a book. You can read it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. I'm Brad Listy. Thank you very much for being here. I'm going to be talking with Jillian Lauren in just a moment. She's the author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, Some Girls, My Life in a Harem. And she's also the author of the new novel, Pretty, now out from Plume. Jillian and I are going to be discussing a whole bunch of different stuff in just a moment. Before I get there, a few things to address. The first being, when good advice is unhelpful. When good advice is unhelpful. I had an experience with this just the other day. I was reading one of those books about writing, a kind of compendium of writers uh, writing about writing. One of those books. And I read this line from Annie Dillard where she said, quote, Assume that you're writing for an audience of terminally ill patients. What can you say to a dying person that would not enrage them by triviality? And I read that, I sat up a little bit straighter in my chair, and I was like, that's it. That's exactly right. Don't waste any time. Don't waste anyone's time. Write with a sense of urgency. No bullshit. This is it. 
And so then I get all excited and I turn to my keyboard and I sit down and my brain starts going and I start to uh, imagine an actual audience of terminally ill patients watching me write. The hospital gowns, the tubes, the EKGs, the IV bags, you name it. And then, you know, then you start to see them getting enraged by my triviality and it just turned into a mess. It froze me up. It's great advice. I think there's a lot of truth in it, but sometimes you get good advice and it's unhelpful and that needs to be said. So there's that and then I also want to talk about beauty. And it seems like a relevant thing to discuss. Jillian Lauren is the guest. She's written uh, this novel, Pretty, you know, one of the themes of which is, of course, beauty. So I started thinking about it, the concept of beauty, what is beautiful, how beauty is in the eye of the beholder, is it a social construct, is it just a marketing ploy designed by ad executives on Madison Avenue, uh, what, is, what, what about the power of beauty, like the genetic lottery aspect of it, the luck, how life works, the randomness, is there any order to it, it's all just chaos. Some people, they're born here and they're beautiful, and then I start thinking about like the people who are born here and they're beautiful and they're also super talented. You know, you have like the beautiful champion athlete, like the, the Rafael Nadals or the Mia Hams or the, you know, the Tom Brady's of the world, uh, Laird Hamilton, Gabriella Reese. They're both champions. They're both really beautiful. Like Laird is one of the best surfers in the world. Gabriella is like a world champion beach volleyball player. Now they're having kids. Those kids are probably going to be champions. It's insane. And, you know, I actually have a friend who met Laird Hamilton once uh, at a ski resort in Canada. And my friend gets back from Canada and he tells me this. And I asked him what Laird was like. And he was like, I I don't know. He kind of talked about himself a lot. Just talked about how he was surfing and stuff. And at first I was like, that's terrible. You know, how self-centered. And then I started thinking about it. And it's like, if you're Laird Hamilton, what are you supposed to do? You know, you're talking to me and you ask me what I did last week. And it's like, oh, I was working on this short story. It was really frustrating. What did you do? Oh, I was in the South Pacific surfing on a wave the size of the Empire State Building. You know, I mean, who, who would you rather listen to? So, you know, beautiful champion athletes. You have your beautiful politicians or your CEOs or whatever who have, like, physical beauty and immense power, financial, political, or otherwise. You know, I think, you know, with the American presidents, it's like JFK. That's pretty much it. I don't know who else you would go to. Maybe Bill Clinton. Maybe Ulysses Grant. Sort of a bearded, poetic drunk you know i don't know uh beautiful champion writers of course you have the you know you have the kerouacs you have in his prime at least you have the gloria steinums and the clarice Lispectors. you have the zadie smiths and then you have like you know contemporary male writers like a guy like colson whitehead sort of dreamy uh, joshua ferris hey you know those guys have it going on ernest hemingway uh you know in his day was sort of like the magnum pi of american letters with that mustache. So there's that. There's the beautiful musicians, of course. That's probably, the, that's the real lottery. That's the, that's the one. If you're a beautiful musician, the Jim Morrison, Robert Plant in his prime, Whitney Houston, come on, Eddie Vedder, it's unfair, okay? So I start thinking about beauty and, uh, you know, how so much of it is visual. How so much of, uh, you know, our, our concept of beauty is derived from our visual sense from how we see things. And so uh, a question that I naturally found myself asking is what happens to beauty if you can't see? Like what's beautiful to a blind person? And I remember, uh, I found myself remembering a book review that I read or a profile that I read in uh, The Atlantic or The New Yorker 
you know, a while back, and I remember it was about this guy named John Hull who had written a book called Touching the Rock, and uh, you know, he's a blind guy, and he was originally from Australia, I believe, and then moved to England as a kid, and I, you know, got cataracts as a teenager, which then like progressively got worse throughout his life until he went totally blind uh, in his middle age, uh, like around the age of fifty. And, you know, so this is a guy who could once see who then, you know, at the middle of his life goes blind. And after he goes blind, he describes this gradual weakening of visual images and memories and how, uh, you know, he eventually goes into something called deep blindness where he loses touch with the entire concept of seeing like concepts like here and there, uh, no meaning to him, loses it all, can't even remember the faces of his wife and children. And this is something I didn't realize. If you are not blind and then you go blind, you lose this. And so, you know, the guy couldn't even remember what like a number nine looked like unless he traced it in the air with his finger. That's how he had to remember what numbers looked like. So naturally, this guy goes into a, like a really deep depression, uh, which is totally understandable as he, as he copes with this deep blindness. And eventually, he's able to pull himself out of it somehow. He's able to emerge... Uh, you know, with a with a better understanding, and and he describes uh, his deep blindness as a dark, paradoxical gift, and uh, you know, as it uh, he describes it as the precursor to the full development of his other senses, which you know you often hear about blind people how you know you lose your sight and suddenly you know your sense of uh, smell gets a lot better or your sense of hearing, whatever it is. But this guy describes deep blindness as the precursor to the full development of of all of his other senses. And, uh, you know, he talks about how, you know, the way that he sees in the world has a lot to do with this, like, you know, this, like, heightened awareness of his other sentence, uh, his other senses and how, you know, in a rainstorm, for instance, or in a rain shower, uh, he can kind of see the surrounding landscape because rain sounds different when it hits, like, for instance, a sidewalk than it does when it hits a pane of glass or a tree stump or a tree, whatever the case may be. And so a guy like John Hall, who's, you know, in deep blindness, he can hear this with incredible accuracy and differentiation. And so, you know, you can see how this guy might experience the beauty of a landscape in a rainstorm just by listening and feeling it and suddenly having this visual sense. And so you think about the luck of the draw, you think about the genetic lottery, you think about how things work out in life or don't work out. Uh, you know, this guy would seem to have been dealt a bad hand of cards. Uh, but, you know, he lives in England. There's a lot of rain there. You just have to accentuate the positive. Um, let's start there. That was that was right out of the gates. I mean, you have a really interesting life story. You have a really interesting path to becoming a writer that I think would safely, it's safe to say that that would make you pretty unique. Um, <laughs> well, I think that, uh, you know, everyone has an interesting path to becoming a writer if they tell it interestingly enough. But I mean, you know? my path is like, by comparison, feels boring. This is something that <laughs> plagues me. Well, I think that this is a common misconception because my story, it's true, uh, has exotic elements to it, but I could write it in the most boring way um and you wouldn't think it was interesting at all i mean maybe 
if you heard about it, you would think it was, I don't know, salacious or titillating or, you know, it would grab you for a second. Um, but I think that those things happen all the time. And, you know, it's just a flash in the pan. So I, I, I think that the challenge is really to to find the the real narrative, the interesting narrative in that. The depth to it. Right. Instead of just the surface stuff. Yeah. So, but, but like start at the beginning. Where are you? You're from back east, right? But I am a nice Jewish girl from New Jersey. Right, right. Yes. And childhood. Give me like a snapshot. Like you were in Jersey. Is this near the city or are you down in South Jersey? Near the city. We were in North Jersey, about half an hour outside of the city. And, you know, very normal childhood in some ways. Um, and I always had this real desire to be on the stage and to be in front of people. I was sort of the singing, dancing, performing at my parents' dinner parties kind of girl. Really? Uh-huh. Like what kind? Like just singing for people? Yep. Yeah, show tunes. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I have a secret musical theater history, although it's not very secret. I wrote about it in the memoir. So, um, you know, there was that, and so I always had this very theatrical kind of personality, which I think played into some of my choices later. Um, and, uh, you know, I had soccer, summer camp, um, and in some ways, very loving parents and well, in, in all ways, very loving parents, but also there was a very complicated relationship, com particularly with my father, who uh, was a generous and loving man, but did not have a whole lot of parenting tools. So um, he was abusive and we, you know, we had a lot of conflict. He and I, we were really, we butted heads. We're both very stubborn individuals. Like in so, adolescence, is that when it like Yes, once exactly. You, you early teen. So um, what what happened was I left home early. I left home when I was 16, and I went to college early. Uh, I got into NYU in their early acceptance program, and I went to the Tisch School of the Arts and studied at the Experimental Theater Wing for about a year before I decided I was I was done with all that. I had learned everything I needed to learn in college. <laughs> right. I was 17. I was ready for life. Right. And, uh, and so I dropped out of school. And that was when I started really having to support myself in New York and really figured out exactly what that meant. And I started working at a strip club. Right. And you were, you were just turned 18 or I, I no, guess you were 17. I was still 17. You can do that? Not officially. Not officially. Yeah. <laughs> this was the early 90s. I don't know if you could get away with it right now, but I think it's a lot more common for, it's a lot more common to be a stripper now, it seems. I mean, back then there was still this kind of um, seamy underbelly feeling about it, which is one of the things that appealed to me because I was sort of a, a writer and, uh, I mean, I, I didn't identify as a writer, particularly at the time. I was always writing. But, you know, identified more as, a, as an actor, as a performer. Um, but I, I had this real desire to, like, experience these limits. You know, these limits of polite society. And I'm, I'm a real limit tester and a limit pusher and uh, my own and other people's. So, uh, so stripping really appealed to me. And like I said, I was this, always this very extroverted theatrical person so it was no big deal for me to get up on stage I was already on stage I was singing I was dancing take off my top didn't seem like that much of a stretch well yeah so I mean like this is something that you know because I think that when you're at that age 
like for me, I think it was drugs. And, and I, I'd say that in, you know, with, with some measure of, uh, what's the word modesty. Cause I didn't have like some sort of crazy drug history, but when you're 19, you're in that like experimental phase or whatever you want to call it. And I always feel like that's a particular age that people, I, I really wanted the stakes to be high. Sure. And it was all, yeah. it was almost sort of absurd because I was like this middle-class kid from Indiana at the, you know, I came to college from Indiana and I was surrounded. Where did you go to school? I went to Colorado and Boulder. Uh-huh. So I was like this kind of wannabe hippie for about a year and a half. And, you know, that was when really the bulk of it happened. It wasn't that long of a period of time. But uh, my friends and I always joke that that was like our our Vietnam. <laughs> Does that make any sense? Because yeah. I feel like, you know, there's a, and then there are the kids who would join the military. for right. for And it seems like a totally different, and it is a totally different experience, but it's almost in some ways for some of the same reasons. Do you understand? I, I see a through, yes. I see a through line there between your experience, what I was doing. You want to have this kind of real experience of life. You know, you're you're on your own for the first time. You want to like feel exactly what that is, like what it means to be sort of defining your own limits, right? You know, and not you don't have a curfew. No one's telling you you can't drink, and no one's telling you know. So who are you, right? In that scenario, my my husband joined the Marines. At that time, I did not yeah. know that. So, yeah, and your husband is—we should get this out of the way to begin with. Your husband is Scott Schreiner, who plays bass for Weezer. Yes. So yes. he was—I didn't know he was a Marine. He was a United States Marine. Yeah. Oh. And uh, you know, and, and for all those same reasons, and so, and and I think you know, for that reason, it's an incredibly exciting time. You know, and I I meet a lot of young girls. I, I met a couple at um, at my book signing last night who are, I can see they're in that moment and they have these really powerful choices in front of them. And it's a very dangerous time because, um, I mean, for me, I had no idea. I had no concept of consequences um, because I hadn't suffered very many. Right. You know, I didn't, like, I just wanted to make the most extreme choice possible and I didn't know what that was going to look like 10 years down the road you know or how it was going to impact me emotionally or um you know and I really thought I was right about everything (laughs) you knew it all I knew it all um so so it is a dangerous time and it's an exciting time and it's an incredible time and um and when I look back on it now I think oh god you know I I mean people say oh you know, do you have any regrets? And no, the official story is I don't have any regrets. But, you know, sometimes I'm really saddened by by the choices I made and by some of the things I did and by, by the disregard I had for my own body. And um, But I also just admire that girl who is so brave and so hopeful. And I really thought, you know, that I, I had this great future in front of me. And I made these tremendously fearless decisions which you know were stupid a lot of them but they were still fearless they had that you know that charge to them and now i I don't make fearless decisions anymore very infrequently i have have a kid i have a life i have a family (laughs) exactly i have a child i have a home i have i have all this stuff that that i value it's like i don't have nothing to lose anymore that's just not true for me right so yeah so how long did this go? Like, was this like a, a short window of time relatively? or did it... uh, Well, I really, I really dragged it out. <laughs> um, but in the book, uh, in, in my memoir, Some Girls, it's 
really only a two-year period that it covers. And I started making some different decisions by the end of that time because eventually, I mean, we haven't gotten into it yet, but what, what that sort of path led me to from stripping and then I was trying to be an actress, so I wound up in these sort of B horror movies and on one of them I met a girl who brought me into doing escort work in New York and then through her I wound up at this audition which was supposedly to entertain rich businessmen in Singapore and then wound up actually being uh, to go and be the personal guest of the Prince of Brunei in Southeast Asia. Just a very common experience. <laughs> Happens to so many people. That's not your path to becoming no. a writer, Brad? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? I'm shrinking here. I was like, I was in my little MFA and, you know, whatever. I it's just an MFA too. I just I, got it later. I know. But I just feel like, I feel like uh, in some ways, and I know that this is, I, I agree with what you said. There's no dull subject. There's just dull writers. Uh-huh. Um, but I also think that sometimes it's impossible for me to read like a memoir or to read about a writer and like this incredible life experience that they've had and not feel some pang of like uh, envy in a weird way. Because yeah. it's like, that's such great material to mine. You know? right. <laughs> well, it's not over yet. Yeah, right. Who knows? <laughs> it's, it's not some... like you're done. Yeah, well, you know. You're done doing everything fascinating you're ever going to do. I will never be the personal guest of the Sultan of Brunei. I'm pretty sure. Well, you know, <laughs> maybe you'll, I don't know, be... He's a big fan yeah. of the Nervous Breakdown <laughs> podcast. And, <laughs> um, but a few people will be the personal guest of the Prince of Brunei now because he has embezzled, since embezzled $9 billion or something, and he's in all kinds of legal trouble for years and years and years now. But at that time, um, he was still living high on the hog. And, um, you know, so I went, I went to Brunei, and I went back and forth to Brunei for a year and a half, and I wound up being, you know, his. Was he flying you first mistress, class? His I mean, girlfriend. Was, this, was this all first class, or was it like? Not in the beginning. It was business class <laughs> until I <laughs> until I worked it a little harder. I mean, come on, this guy's got the money. I worked my way up to first class. Yeah. Um, but you know, when I traveled with him, I flew in his private jet, and I mean, it was a level of opulence that few people in the world will ever see. Because he was the richest man in the world at the time. The Sultan of Brunei, which was the prince's older brother, was the richest man in the world. Well, I'm, so. seeing, I'm fascinated by that level of wealth. Like, and, mm-hmm. you know, I don't even know where it starts, but it's somewhere in probably the billions. And I've had conversations about this where when you get that rich, you're no longer making, you know, and there are so few people who are there. But for the ones who are there, they don't make decisions regarding money that have anything to do with numbers. It all right. has to do with emotions. Yes. How, how badly do you want something? Do you want that yacht? Do you want that, you know, you can have it. It's just how badly do you want it? Right. And and for their level, um, I would go one further than that and say it, you, you, there is no badly or not badly. Or there's just nothing you can't afford. You just say, I want it, I have it. It's not, you know, you, it doesn't matter how badly you right. want it. And so things have no value. You know, because you don't want anything badly. Wanting something badly would assume that there's some reason you couldn't have it. Right. You know? That's a good point. Um, So, I mean, why else would you want something bad? I mean, if you could just have it at the first thought of a thing, no matter what that thing was. Um, So what's it like to be in a room with somebody like that? I mean, like, what's it like to be... 
uh, friends with them. I mean, yeah, it was really um, a lot of things. You know, it was very complicated. I mean, there's a lot of gray area because I came from. I mean, I certainly didn't come from a place of like particularly wanting that or valuing it. You know, I was a little punk rocker in high school, and I was always very political. And, you know, I went from writing papers on Chiapas and wanting to go and, you know, meet the Zapatistas to being the mistress of this incredibly decadent man. And uh, it it was this real, like split personality for me and uh and so i was able to participate in it and sort of observe at the same time which is kind of the perfect position for being a writer you know that i well, always I mean, had this critical eye trained on what was going on you, you always had one foot in reality going i'm doing this like you were self-aware of like yeah. i'm in this yeah. crazy experience although and- i did really start to lose myself in it a little bit and uh and got i think quite depressed as a result and also because I'm kind of depressed (laughs) who isn't these days right (laughs) but uh, I mean that's just sort of my my chemistry but also uh, I just lost what was sort of meaningful to me it would have to have a corrosive effect after a while like there's nobody who can because that's one of the things like uh, I feel like when it comes to like strippers sex work you know there's the, the very rarely do you show any of those weaknesses in the professional context? It's kind of like the job to be like, everything's great. Right. You have to be in a good mood. Right. 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 Um, but there's, and so it can be easy when you're like on the outside looking in, or if I'm watching like a documentary, I'm like, these people seem well adjusted. And and, and in some ways they are, but like, there's just no way to escape. Or I'm asking, is there any way to escape the corrosive effect? Did you ever meet somebody who worked in it who was like totally fine? Um, well, you know, I meet very few people who are totally fine in right. any profession. But I know a handful of women who I really feel are emotionally present sex workers. You know, who are like, I mean, and and some of them are, are a little bit older now and are sort of have moved into different avenues of it. But I really think that... Um, that it's kind of like their gift and they're able to sort of see themselves as educators and they really... And it's therapeutic um, for the customer? Is, I mean, uh, is there know, any of that? Is I there mean, any like well, compassion? You know, a, a couple of the women, they're really in porn, so it's not so much like customer per se. Um, right. But for the most part, I would say that, and this was certainly true for me, that what made me a good sex worker was my ability to completely dissociate from what was going on in my body, you know, and that came from having a very difficult childhood so that I was able to just flip the switch and suddenly I was not there and I couldn't feel what was going on. And, and that was a really great, powerful feeling for somebody like me, who's like a big mush, you know, I'm super sensitive. I'm, you know, whatever, pulling the car over to weep every five minutes. (laughs) And, um, you know, so to be, to find this, this place in myself where, uh, you know, I don't feel anything at all. And in fact, I'm doing all this crazy shit. And it, excuse me. Oh, you sorry. can cuss. I it's, can cuss? Yeah, it's totally right. wide open. Well, <laughs> fuck yeah. <No. laughs> um, but in, 
and in fact, I'm doing all this crazy stuff, and in fact, I'm doing all this really degrading stuff, and, you know, I mean, it wasn't always degrading, but certainly sometimes it was, you know, and in any case, stuff that I wouldn't be choosing to do if I wasn't being paid, um, and I don't feel anything at all, hmm. and, uh, and that is, I think, where the corrosive effect comes in, because... I lost control of that switch somewhere along the way. And I don't think anything where you completely disconnect yourself from your emotions is healthy. Right. Um, and, you know, and, and I don't tell women not to do it, you know, but I just try to encourage, like, I, you know, I get a lot of people asking me, well, should I be a stripper? And I'm like, wow, well, um, you know, that's a really hard question. I'm not ever going to tell anyone no, but I try to say, like, are you making this choice? Is it the most loving choice you can make toward yourself? Um, you know, is it coming from, like, oh, this is your passion? You know, this is something you feel like you were born to do. This is something you love. Are there strippers who feel like that, you think, authentically? I, I do, um, but one in a million and isn't there a dividing line between i mean the stripping work and then the the, the, the escort work yeah i mean there is there I mean, is in, for in sure, terms of that in terms but, of that switch in terms of that switch did you feel uh, like same i mean you're sitting you're sitting you know you're sitting yeah. on someone's lap you're sitting on some i mean it's it's not like you're a stripper like oh you're in some burlesque club it's not you know 1953 i mean you know, you're grinding on somebody's hard on for however many hours a night and ruining, you know. Right. It's not, the time you spend on stage dancing is not really where the money's made and it's not the bulk of what you spend your time doing. Right. And that. It's a hustle. It's the hustle. And that's what sort of gets that switch to flip on. And yeah. Off and, yeah. Yeah. So. The lying, the pretending, the hustling, you know. And and like I said, I'm not saying it's it's a bad thing. I'm not making a moralistic judgment on it. I'm just saying that to sort of like lop off your emotional honesty for however many hours a night, um, I, I don't think it works very well for most people in the long term. Yeah, and I mean, and how many times have you? I feel like you must have discussed this so many times in the tour for your book and all the press and stuff like you've talked about this a lot I have talked about it a lot and I feel like that's really amazing that's really a gift that I get to talk about it does it help know? um well I don't I don't it's not like I really need help with it per se anymore but I mean does I it mean, does it feel does it feel good maybe is a better way to put it I I appreciate being able to offer my perspective on this because I think that that one of the things I really wanted to present and one of the reasons that I wrote the book was to give this perspective from a sex worker, from somebody who's been, I mean, I'm not a sex worker anymore. I haven't been for a long time, but for somebody who really, you know, lived in that world and identified that way, um, just how complex it is. I think that m mostly what we get is either you know, sex workers are these sort of femme fatale, like demonic creatures, you know, or these victims, these, you know, victims in the emergency room. And, uh, and, and, you know, I mean, those polls are, you know, I'm sure true 
for a small percent of the time, but but far more often there's there's this large gray area, and you know people, women and and men, um, but you know I'm I'm speaking from female perspective, um, make the decision to go into sex work from all kinds of backgrounds for all kinds of reasons. And, uh, and so I, I just wanted to present a perspective that I, I thought was fairly unusual and didn't really conform to most of the stereotypes that are fed to us by Hollywood and And that, I mean, did you, but television. I mean, it seemed, I mean, I don't want to hammer this point too hard, but did it feel like, I mean, it had to have been therapeutic to write the book and tell the story. Eh. Eh. I don't know. Do you think writing is therapeutic? I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, speaking from my experience, like my novel was sort of like a grief novel. Uh-huh. And I think it was in the sense that it was me trying to kind of like wrap my head around big questions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was about so the main character loses an ex to suicide. I lost a buddy to suicide when I was in college. Right. And so that was like this really big existential question. I wrote a book about a guy dealing with suicide grief. It's hard not to look at that and say, well, clearly I had something to, something to, you know, I needed to put it down in front of me so that I could see it more clearly. Right. That's therapeutic. That. Uh, yeah, I, I guess. Okay, so therapeutic, yes. I guess that the what I feel like is a misconception is that writing a memoir is so cathartic. You know, like oh, you write it down and it, you get it out. Right. And I'm like, yeah, you don't get it out. <laughs> it's, it's a, there is no out. You yeah, know? <laughs> it's still there. It's still there. And in fact, you know, I dredged up all this stuff when I was writing my memoir. Um, that was extremely painful that I had done a lot to shut the door on. Not because I didn't want to talk about it or because I didn't, you know, I I was pretending it didn't happen, but just because I, I don't live in that reality anymore. And I'm such a different person now. And I much prefer the person I am now. Sure. You know, and, and I, I didn't want to be that girl again. And of course, if you really are going to sink into it and sink into that pain and sink into those emotions, that's the only way to properly write that story. So, um, you know, it was hard and I had to go to a lot of therapy. There was, you know, stuff that came up in my body and, you know, that maybe I never felt because now I'm capable of feeling this stuff. You know, now I'm safe and... Now I'm, you know, not having to go into work tonight and pretend like I don't feel anything at all anymore. So, um, so actually it was, so it was therapeutic, but not, I think not in the way that most people think it is. Sure. So how did it end? Like, how do you, how did you transition out of that and into a different phase? Um, well, I mean, how I picked the ending of the book is sort of, I feel like endings are always a little bit arbitrary. You know, I found a place that sort of made sense in terms of story arc. But really, um, I, I continued to strip even after I left Brunei. And it took me a long time. Um, it took me another, eh, took me another six or seven years Um before I, you know, when I had some struggles with substance abuse, before I was finally able to really, to get sober and really make a drastic change in my life. Although at the end of my time in Brunei, I sort of made some choices that, that did start to set me on that path. So that, then that's the end of the memoir. Right. 
Well, so, and, and the substance abuse stuff, like you're completely sober? I am. You are? Okay. Mm-hmm. So, like, was it alcohol and drugs kind of thing? Yes. Like yeah. A whole combination? It, it, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was everything. I mean, I'm, I'm, also, I'm a heroin addict. So, uh, I mean, not an active heroin addict, but I'm a full tilt junkie given the opportunity. So, um, you know, that was really my drug of choice. And that didn't, that didn't come into play until a little bit later. Was it you smoking it, injecting it, or? Yes. Anything. <laughs> <laughs> yes, on both fronts. That's safe. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, I don't. However I could get it in me. That was it. Yeah. The injecting, the smoking thing, I can sort of like imagine the injecting thing is pretty hardcore to me. Yeah. You know, I think most people, it's the needles, you know. Yeah. I I liked the needles. You liked it. I did. I mean, like I said, I'm a limit pusher. I'm a fairly extreme person. And so, you know, the needles really appealed to me. So how did you get sober? Like, did you just decide one day? Like, people have different stories. Did you just break it off or did you go into like AA and yes. rehab and the whole thing? Yeah, all that. All um, and I, I spent a lot of time in rehab. <laughs> yeah. I did a fairly long stint in rehab. When I, when I finally got sober, I tried to get sober a lot before that. So. But it usually takes, I mean, it's common for it to... It takes a bunch of times, yeah, usually. For most yeah. people. I mean, you do hear these like random stories of people who just like up and quit. Eh, but I feel like... Not very often. Not very often. Or sometimes I feel like... You know, people who just cut it off but don't ever get therapy. About, right. Like the emotional work done. Yeah. It, it doesn't necessarily, it's not like a full. They're not always the most fun people. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, then you're just living in the same disease. If you want to go with the disease model, which I do, um, then you're just living in the disease, but you don't have your medicine. So So now, yeah. uh, you know, just to talk about like depression, because I feel mm-hmm. like, I mean, I feel like this is common. I feel like it's especially common in, in writer world. Yeah. Um, but how do you manage it? I mean, do you know? Like, I, I'm one of those exerciser people, I I'm think. I'm an exerciser person. I, I have to. I think it's... Yeah. Because I've had this conversation even on, uh, I think, other episodes of this podcast where, uh, it, you know, it's it's a mood regulator. Mm-hmm. And it beats having to take, you know, a bunch of different drugs. I'm that person, too. But whatever. <laughs> but whatever. You know, you do, you do what you need to do. But I'm just... Uh, right. I, I feel like... Um, you know, it's worth discussing because I think yeah. it's sort of this unspoken thing, not just for writers, but for a lot of people. But but a lot for for writers. I mean, more often than not, I think, and for everyone in the arts, but I just think there's a particular mind, like a particular brain chemistry that makes one choose or have this calling to sit and stare at a wall all day long. Or I, I always say stare at a flashing cursor, <laughs> yeah. which is even more like menacing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because those are, you know, a lot of my days are spent just me in the wall or like on worst days, it's me in the ceiling. You know, like lie, I spend a lot of time lying on the floor of my office. <laughs> Weeping, just crying. <laughs> I do, I cry. Um, so, but, so uh, you know, I do a little bit of everything. Um, and... I so I exercise a lot, um, and I do some meditation and and have you know a spiritual practice. And I was going to say, you, is take, it like just like a non-denominational? Or are you like a, a Buddhist? Would you consider yourself? I'm not a Buddhist, um, but I do some, or I, I certainly did. I mean, now I'm doing sort of some variation on it because just 
my kid and my life and the craziness, some form of transcendental meditation. Um, and then I have this sort of spiritual, you know, thing that is separate from that as well, that I, it's just my own personal thing, um, well, like prayer you, and, oh, okay. you know, but um, you're not like a member of a church. I'm not, I mean, I'm certainly open to it and I feel like my husband and I are kind of looking around right now because my son's about at that age where I started connecting with religion. I was raised Jewish, um, my husband is Christian, and we're like, we're open to all of it. We're good with all of it. We just want to find a community that makes sense with us, that has politics we don't object to, and that has some sort of connection with God that we relate to. Um, but it was very important to me as a child. Um, I was really connected with religion as a child. And and this is a, a lot of what's in my new book, my novel, Pretty um, deals a lot with religion and faith. It's it's about a young woman who was a born again Christian and sort of fell from the fold and then and got involved with this man and was in a terrible car accident and at, is trying to piece together a faith that makes sense in her present moment because her her old faith isn't working and. No faith isn't working either. So, um, you know, and, and that was a lot of my stuff, you know, that I'm using this character to, I'm just kind of putting her through hell to sort of work out my own problems with faith or my own questions about faith. Of course, yeah. Um, but that's very important to me in terms of my depression. And also, you know, I, I think that it's just a lot of years of living with it. Oh, and I take medication. <laughs> Touch <laughs> all the bases. That. I do I, I do it all. Um, and I try to eat really well that's a big piece of it i think that's not talked about it enough not not only relative not only relative to mental health but just everything how you feel it's huge i mean if i go and start eating a a whole bunch of sugar that is like a massive mood altering drug Mm -hmm. so i'm setting myself up for a crash i can't afford a crash i mean maybe some people who have really even brain chemistries or no kids or no kids that's what i always say i can't afford to not be at least somewhere near my best or at least, you know, right. I, ha- I have to take care of myself. I have a child right. now. I, and I don't have the luxury of, like, wallowing, you know? Right. Or even, like, I mean, I it's been a long time. I've been sober for almost 10 years. But um, it's been a long time since I had a hangover. But I'm like, how? I know people mm. who are, like, you know, getting mm. hammered. And I'm like, do you get up at 6 in the morning <laughs> with your kid? Because... No. I know you've got like a four-year-old and you are just hammered right now. And how do you do that? No, I'd throw my kid out the window if I was hungover. Yeah, we're just changing a diaper uh, with a hangover. Oh, God. Don't even, I won't even tell you what I faced this morning. Yeah, I mean, no. I just... So, you know, nutrition is a big part of it. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I try to have some kind of balance. Just aware. I just try to be aware. Yeah. So now with regard to, I'm fascinated by transcendental meditation. Have uh-huh. you, have you done the actual, you go in and you get the training and, yep. the, and they give you your My mantra. My and I both did. They give you a mantra. Is that, is that a scam? I mean, do you feel, were you like, I can't believe I just paid all this for some guy to whisper like, Om Shalala in my ear. And then... <laughs> that is a really good question. Uh, and it's a very complicated question. Uh, no, it's not a scam. I it doesn't. Think, it's not. It's not cheap these well, days. Well, there are various camps, okay. right? 
So there are camps that are really expensive. And um, and they are often really amazing teachers, and they have a lot to offer. Now, there are people who are offering similar things for not very much money. Now, you know, even meditation teachers need to live. So, you know, we all we all need to live. We all need to eat. We I don't think that just something costing money negates its spiritual worth. I do think that particularly in Los Angeles, there is this sort of luxury spirituality thing going on um, where there will be these really expensive vacations and retreats and and teachers who give mantras and um, they become this kind of elitist thing and, and sort of very celebrity heavy and um you know i think it's a little suspect it's yeah personally I mean, I saw, it's not I my s- favorite thing um but the teaching that they offer is often still really wonderful and really valid and is really helping all those people so um, and that, no. that really so I don't think there's an easy answer no and that ultimately determines I mean, it's a, kind of a personal thing it's sort of what you do with it that, and how it affects you that ultimately determines its worth right I mean my husband and I were definitely like um, have sort of gone off and we're doing our own thing now and we're not affiliated with any particular teacher or guru or um, you know any camp because because of that, well, I think we got we got a little disenchanted with the whole LA spirituality scene. Yeah, well, and I was you know I was meditating really regularly for a while. I'm like I I'm a fan of it. I think I gravitate towards that. Uh-huh. I think that's a good thing. And as a writer, I understand it because it's like there's a lot of sitting still when you're writing. That's it. It's just like keep yourself yeah. sitting still and like don't let your and if you wander, come back. Like if you wander, come back. That totally yeah. makes sense to me. And I like the fact that it's uh, I don't know. There's a logic to it. There is. It absolutely, you know, is the same muscle as writing in a lot of ways. But I just, I felt, I think once we had the baby, it was like I was getting up really early to do it. And then Uh we had the baby and I was still getting up really early to do it. And then I fell out and I need, I feel like I need to get back in. And then I was reading, uh, I was watching a lot of David Lynch movies and I was reading his book. You ever read that book? Yeah. What he wrote a book about meditation and I Catching the Big Fish. I listened it's great. Yeah, and I listened to yeah. it on audiobook and he reads it. So heavy. Yeah. I just I don't love anyone as much as I love David Me Lynch. Me too. I, I, I love him. Yeah. We just rewatched Twin Peaks. <gasps> yeah. Oh my he's, god. He's really in, so good. So I got all I got all geeked out about uh, TM yeah. and I was like I got to go do this and you know and then he's like he makes this really compelling case where he's like you know what would be better than like these people who are teaching this really great thing to make good money and I'm like yeah, yeah that makes sense you know and I just got to get it together to go do it or I don't know you should I mean it's totally worth exploring it's a wonderful thing I mean right now I'm not really formally doing TM for all of the reasons that you just said you know I had been getting up really early well now I get up really early with our three and a half year old yeah well now I get up really early and all I got is an hour and I want to go for a run yep you know, and but I do meditate every day when I sit down to work. And sometimes I know, oh, well, I only have three hours, okay? I need, I can't take 20 minutes of that. So 10. So I'll take... Five. Five. I will take 
I'll take three breaths, like three conscious breaths, you know, in between like, ooh, email, Twitter, blah, blah, uh. blah. And like having to sink into that place that like deep and, you know, I feel like it's small and deep, that place that you need to like hit to get to the good stuff creatively. And the meditation helps you get there. Yeah, or at least it puts a bookend on the other crap. I mean, even David Lynch, I, I love what David Lynch says about time, having your creative time, which is, like, you need four hours to get an hour of good work done. That makes sense to me. Because, yep. like, the first three hours, a lot of the time, you're just, like, dicking around or, like, struggling to get into that zone. Yeah. And I just feel like the meditation just, it maximizes you know, the time that you do have. I don't always have four hours these days. I mean, I do. I mostly do. I mostly, you know, work from nine to four, but. That's a good window. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, uh, yeah, I've got to get my, I got to get my schedule sorted. Like when to do everything, like exercise, Ugh. take care of the baby, do all the, you know, do this, do the nervous breakdown, do a million yeah. different things. And like, it's like somewhere in there, I've got to find that writing zone for like three hours. Right. I think that's where I would go. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's the, exactly like you're saying, there's, there's all this stuff that needs to happen in that nine to four. Right. So it's, you know, I'm always working on articles and journalism and I'm a blogger and I'm, you know, I've got all this stuff that is, it's a different kind of attention. And then there is, you know, novels and, and memoir and and this other stuff that I'm working on or I just wrote uh, wrote and performed a one woman show you know and that was needed a different kind of conscious attention you know turn off the internet kind of attention to write well I mean and this is this brings up an interesting question that I think is pretty applicable uh, to most writers is that you know you're writing blogs you're doing your Twitter feed you're doing your right. Facebook you're trying to promote pretty sure and some yeah. girls do you find that you have to discipline yourself to work on the memoir and the fiction stuff first before you go blog and before you go to the internet? Yes. Do you, do you feel like if you start with that stuff, it might kind of like wear you out? And then it does. The, it does. Absolutely. Yeah. It does. It just, um, it, it, I get this fatigue, you know, this sort of, and I think it's the attention issue, the time span, the way that, you know, when you're researching something online or, or blogging or, you know, linking or, you know, doing, and, you know, t tweeting and responding, there's this, it's like this lightning fast sort of shift that happens between websites, between, you know, thoughts, be between, um, whatever, pa web pages. And, uh, that is the complete opposite of what I need. To actually, like when I'm starting to work on, you know, writing sort of longer form, writing novels, writing, doing my, I'd like, I don't even want to say more serious creative work because I, I love my blogging and all that and I write some really serious stuff there, but, um, you know, this, the marathon, not the sprint, right? I, I will, I'll start with long hand journaling. You know, I do this sort to of warm up. Yeah. I do the kind of artist way. I never did the artist way, but the morning pages thing. Sure. Just like three pages of blah, longhand. Um, and that will like, I feel like it connects my brain and my hand, my brain and the words. It's like clearing your throat kind yeah. of before giving the big speech. Yeah. You know. 
So, yeah. So, but I do think I do do it first. And like right now, I'm I'm out promoting pretty and I I find that I can't really write. Um, you know, I, I'm not working on there's a, a memoir that another memoir that I'm working on and I'm not writing it right now because I just can't. You know, because I don't have enough hours in a day to do everything and I just don't have the attention that I need to do the good work. Well, and you also have to give attention to promoting the book these days. You know, it's you a- do. It's just a reality of being a writer and I will rail against it and I scream and cry and curse and I'm sure everyone else doesn't have to do it. I'm like, you know, that person, <laughs> that person just, you know, whatever buyer Barnes and Noble just Right. You know, did this is this for them, and that person's publisher loves them, and that person's just was the media bestseller. They don't do shit, and they suck. You know, that's so fact, few and far just... between. That's like such the rare instance, though. Like I find that I find that I you read these like scathing criticisms of social media and uh, the the internet in general by certain like authors that are who are usually like on the literary side of the ledger, right? right. And it's not that I necessarily even disagree with them. I just think that they have, they usually have the profound luxury of not having to engage while the rest of us who are trying to get a foothold are like, what choice do you have? I mean, you can say, no, I'm not going to participate, but then, you know, you're, you're, you're left to kind of sit there and just like watch your book float off into the world. And at least the social media and the web gives you some feeling of, um, being able to affect the process. Yeah. And, you know, it's not, um, and of course I always have this, you know, I, I feel like I, I've got kind of one foot in the boat and one foot on the dock for, you know, I, I do consider myself a literary writer, but then I'm also like, I've got a foot in the pop culture world too. Um, well, and you're a performer. I mean, you've got like this. Yeah. I've got a a lot of kind of, you know, stuff going on, but of you know, the writers who I always really, like, worship and read are firmly on the dock of the literary writers, for the most part, you know? Who, who, and, are, some of your, who are some of your idols? Oh, uh, like, Mary Gayskill is the first person that comes to mind. Like, she's, like, up on the dock. Right. You know? <laughs> no doubt. Like, come on into the boat. <laughs> I'll make you some tea. <laughs> me i swear (laughs) (laughs) but i can't find you on twitter mary what's going on that's what i'm saying you never would yeah i know and well i I can't even remember what like that always will sort of you know like the wells towers and the people who sort of like just the literary elite right now and that they're always like doing these interviews that where they're like whatever the Twitter is the scourge of the earth, and, uh, and I just and I'm just like I carry that shame with me for years. Yeah, no, I'm the same way. But I mean, I run a I run an internet literary magazine, so I'm like doubly. I'm like, oh my god, what am I doing? It's not like <laughs> it's not like written like you know printed on parchment with like you know right. But paper. you know, I, I was actually talking to um, I was talking to a friend of mine and saying that um, you know. I, I mean, I think also particularly for women, this is true that like, like you're just you're never gonna be you're never gonna be pure enough and good enough and literary enough until you kill yourself. 
That's a, like, great, it's a great career move. It's a terrific it's a career terrific move. Terrific career move if you're a woman writer. Any writer. You know? Yeah. I'm, any re- writer. I'm reading a. Uh, I'm reading this oral biography of Hunter Thompson right now. Uh huh. Um, and it, I mean, it's just fa- the guy fascinates me. He mm-hmm. lived this kind of. He lived a wild life. Uh, you you find out a lot more about like the consequences of it when you read it. It was much messier than like most people think, or at least sure. It's the romance of self destruction. Yes, is... but it was like this prolonged thing, uh, and I do feel like I mean it's it sounds sort of darkly dark and cynical to say, but it was definitely a good thing for his books. Mm-hmm. Like it's no cold blooded, but it was same thing with uh, Hemingway. And you can go down the list of any writer who's ever done that, and that's sad to say, mm-hmm. you know, and and. Um, not advisable, ultimately. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to live. You know, that's why I write, and I think that that's why they wrote too, and they came up with a different answer than I've come up with. You know, yeah. as till now, I can't say you know what the future holds, but. Well, but I mean, I, I will would... also say that in terms of the blogging and the tweeting and all of that, that there is this part of me that, and particularly with my blogging, that I do feel like it is this organic extension of something that has a lot to do with my more serious, I'm making the bunny ear serious writing, which is that, like, I'm a compulsive documenter. I always have been. How so? Um. Well... I mean, one of the ways that I wrote my memoir was, you know, writing about things that happened 18 years ago, um, was I had journals and journals and journals. And not because I thought I was ever going to write a book, because at that time I didn't, but I just would write down what everyone was wearing and what they were saying. And when this was... Are you going to write down what I'm wearing right now when you leave this room? (laughs) I'm wearing a blue shirt and jeans. (laughs) She's like, I have no interest. Um, Well... (laughs) (laughs) It's <laughs> <laughs> so embarrassing. I feel but like I a- should, though, because one of the things that I have learned is that the, it's not the stuff you think that's interesting that ultimately winds up being interesting. Yeah. You know, because Prince Jeffrey wore the same thing every single day. Did he? Was he one of those guys? Yes. Like Jay Leno wears the denim sandwich every day. Did you know that? I didn't know There are that. certain people. It's like OCD. Like he only, yeah. like Jay Leno, when he's not on the show, will wear like the denim shirt and blue jeans. Every single day. Ouch. That's strange. Yeah. <laughs> and of all things to be attached to. The Let's see. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a little, that's kind of like Chairman Mao of him or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he drives a different car every day, I hear. Yeah. He's got a fleet. Right. He has a fleet. So, and so did Prince Jeffrey. Connection. Similarity. Is there some, hmm? yeah. I don't know. Jay Leno have a harem somewhere we don't know about. <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me. Um, but I'm a compulsive documenter. So, you know, my husband came home the other day. He was like, uh, with the Instagram. He's like, I got something you're going to love. Oh, yeah, right. And I was like, wow, this is so Is that great. like the iPhone app? Yes, where yeah. you take the picture. And then, and, and I'm sponsored by them now. And so I'm, no, I'm not. I'm oh. just kidding. Um, <laughs> I hate I believe, advertising I... for anything. <laughs> but, but I was like, well, you get to like take pictures and then send them, and it was just so what I do anyway, you know. Uh, but here is this just really convenient way of doing it. So, uh, you know, I, I am a real documenter. I'm a note taker. I'm a picture taker. I'm um, I like to have a thing between me and the world, 
you know, this sort of, I'm the observer and whatever tool. Do you, like, when you read the news, do you save articles and stuff like that, too? No. It's all just documenting your experience. Yes. I'm far more narcissistic than that. Yeah, I'm not interested. I don't care what anyone else writes. <laughs> I don't care what anyone else thinks. I do care what I think hey. of what you're wearing. That's right. You know? <laughs> Fashion opinions. So get take me from, uh, you know, we've obviously covered the early part of your life, but I'm interested in knowing, like, when you really got serious about writing. Right. Okay. So... So one cool thing about Brunei was that I would say that that was the place I started writing in a way that was, took my journaling beyond, you know, I really think Sean is cute and (laughs) I have to lose 10 pounds and maybe I should read more Dostoevsky, you know, (laughs) I don't know why I said that, like I'm from the Valley, because that's interesting, it would be more like... Okay, so I, I really need to lose 10 pounds. And, <laughs> but, um, so, and I started to look, I, I was so bored there, you know, and I had these afternoons that would just stretch on forever with these women I didn't have a whole lot in common with. And I started writing down what everyone was saying and yes, what everyone was wearing and what, what it smelled like and what it looked like and, and how I was feeling but with a different critical eye um, than I had before, and that's really a muscle. And so, uh, like, that that was something that I then took and continued. As a practice. As a practice. Um, and, and still do. And uh, although I've been really lousy about it for the last few months, I don't know what's going on, but... Um, well, it works. It seems it to work in... It goes in and out. Yeah. It's like cycles yeah. and phases. and Yeah. And, and whenever I don't do it, I regret it years later. I always do. I'm like, what? What? What's well, happening right then? Nothing feels better than having written. Like, you know, it's, right. it's not the writing, it's the having written. Well, also when I look back and I say, oh, what was that thing that happened? What was that observation? What was that feeling? What was, if I haven't written it down, it's gone. Do you have a good memory? Um... I have a better memory than I generally give myself credit for. And that is what I found. But I need to figure it out by actually putting words to it. I don't I can't come up with anything if I'm just like on the fly or just trying to come up with it out of my head. I need to be at a keyboard or at a pad. And then I find, well, I actually do remember. But I don't know how people think. Like think without writing I think by writing no that's people what... say I'm gonna go and, and think about that I was like how does that work exactly because no I think it's it, it that's what it is it's like it's like a thought exercise I mean it sounds so obvious but it, a good writer is a good thinker or somebody who's gotten to the place where the thinking has become really lucid and poetic or whatever you want to call it but I yeah. agree I agree you know I, I feel like having everything just in here like in your head is is uh for me anyway it doesn't necessarily suffice it it seems like a jumble yeah for me it's doesn't suffice at all (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't suffice for anything it's kind of useless well i think it goes back to too what you were talking about with uh all the different distractions that exist Mm -hmm. in the world you know it's very difficult i think for anybody to to be immersed in all of that and to feel like their brain is clear or organized Mm -hmm. yeah 
Yeah, I mean, definitely, like I'm saying, that it does make sense, the social media, you know, and the blogging, and, um, but I do feel sort of like the balance can tip. Easily. You know, easily to where it's not something that I'm using. It's something that's using me. And, like, for, for instance, you know, if my book came out a week ago, Pretty, my novel came out a week ago. And I feel like, you know, and I'm so desperate for some sort of, you know, your book goes out in the world and it's this kind of, uh, this it's like your kid going to kindergarten. That's hollow what... feeling. Yeah. Like, I want some, I want some answer. Right? Like your kid gets back from kindergarten and tells you, you know, that they learned to trace the letter A and made a macaroni house. And (laughs) I I got no macaroni house. (laughs) I'm always like, my my feeling about it is always like, it's like you send, it's like you're sending your little kid off into the world and you're like, you know, you just don't want it to get beat up. (laughs) Yeah. You know, beat, beat him up. I mean, don't beat him up. I can't say that because I do have a kid, but just something. Right, this feeling of um, uh, this, like you know, it's like this hollow sucking sound mm-hmm. or something, and um, so I, I, I'm like checking my phone and checking my phone and checking my phone. What am I checking it for? I don't know. And my husband looks at me and he's like, "The answer isn't there. <laughs> it's not there." <laughs> You're staring into an empty void. I get it though. And I'm like, oh, you're right. But I do that. With I'm like, waiting to see that the world has changed. No, I do that with like, Twitter. A I do that with. I'll tweet something, and I'll think it's like a funny tweet, and right. then I'll be like, did anyone retweet it? And I'm like, what the fuck am I, I doing? <laughs> Why am I doing? Like, I'm spending time on yeah. this, you know, and it drives me yeah. nuts. It's like I feel like some people can just like you know they can tweet in Facebook in this like disengaged way. Really? Can they? Maybe. Uh, Maybe that's it might my imagination. Be that fantasy that we're having. I think that by its nature, I don't know. I'm an addict. So I get addicted to stuff. Yeah. So I get addicted to like a rush, right? I want a response. I want a rush. I want the world to be answering me immediately. Um, so then, oh, here's this thing where the world is answering you immediately. That's right. Instant gratification. Instant gratification. And, and so I can get really, you know, I can, it can really get a hook in me. Sure. Um, so how do you dis, how do you, how do you get away from it? Just put it down. You're able to put it down. I don't know. I'm really struggling with it right this second, <laughs> you know, because I'm in this publicity cycle. Right. And that, I think the vibration of a publicity cycle is just that. Exactly. It's like email, 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 call, 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 call. Do you like me? Well, why not? <laughs> <laughs> but please like me. But oh God, I suck. Yeah. Well, of course you don't like me. Yeah. You know, it's horrible, horrible, mind fuck, awful thing. Um, that I'm completely grateful to be able to be engaged in <laughs> right. because I swear to God I couldn't get arrested for the longest time. You it's know? a high class problem. It P- is. Publicity tour. Yeah. yeah. So, so with regard to the writing, you're writing more seriously, um, and then you know, obviously, you're now uh, a twice published. Oh, author. so we didn't get get to that. So uh, when so I I sort of got the. Like, what it takes to look at the world with a critical eye. Like, that sort of discipline. But then I wasn't able to actually have the writing discipline, like, do the hard stuff. The hard, hard work that is writing a book until I got sober. You know, Hangover, that was Hangovers what, tend not to be compatible with, like, really long... Heroin th- addiction? Not so much. <laughs> I mean, people have done it, but you know. for a short burst. Yeah. 
You know, like you can get a good book maybe if you get on a hot streak, but yeah. I don't think it's conducive to a long career. Yeah, and mine wasn't just one that very good. I mean, I, you know, I certainly did write reams of crap, but um, to actually to be able to apply the craft and to sit down at the same... I mean, I'm a very, like, sit down at the same time every day kind of puritanical work ethic person. That's the kind of writer I am. Um, and that's how I, cause I, I like just churn through drafts, draft after draft, after draft, after draft. And that's, I haven't found a way around it yet. I keep waiting, <laughs> keep waiting for another option, but that doesn't seem to be one for me. I think that's common. Yeah. Right. So I need that time, you know? And, and so, um, I, that's the only way I could do it. And the only way that I could have that sort of discipline was to get sober so that's when it really started that's when yeah and were you thinking i'm gonna i'm gonna be an author i'm gonna publish no Mm -mm. when i got sober i was so um just done with everything i knew about myself i know i really was was ready to have a, a whole different um i don't know idea of myself in the world, you know, because what I had had not worked for a very long time. And I was like, I don't care if I never write another word. I don't care if I never perform again. I don't care if I never make any more art ever. I'm just going to get a job. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to be like a worker among workers. And, and that's all I need. I want this sort of very simple life. And so I went to beauty college. And I decided I was going to be a hairdresser. That was what I was going to do. And that is a respectable job um, that I can, you know, whatever, have my tattoos and my nose rings and all that stuff. Sure. So uh, I I went to this beauty college. And, of course, I just looked around. I was just completely bored with what the actual work we were doing. But I was completely fascinated with all the people around me. And so I would sit, sit down in the afternoons and I started writing. <laughs> so that, that was how long that lasted. I don't Whoa. care if I write another word. And that, the book, and I wrote a book. And it was a terrible book. And it was the first draft of what is now my novel, Pretty, which is partially set in a beauty college. Huh. Well, yeah. so, but I mean, when you're working as a, a beautician or a stylist or whatever, what's the proper terminology? Either one works, right? Beautician's a little bit like That's 1950s little, yeah, or right. something. But a stylist or a, a I mean, you're not hair a barber. Stylist, I was, yeah. But stylist. that job, mm-hmm. uh, you're sitting down with people and you have sort of a captive audience with them and you meet, you're meeting characters all day long. Oh, yeah. And there's an intimacy. Like I'm like buddies with uh, Janet, the gal that cuts my hair. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, and we've been, I've been. You hear stories. Yeah. And I mean, I'm a story person. And vice versa. I mean, like there's just yeah. a, there's a, there's a dialogue that I think is unique and a personal relationship that you build there that, you know, and there's not too many professions like that. I mean, it's almost like therapy, you yeah. know, in a way. Yeah. And so that seems like it would be good for a writer. It's a very story heavy profession. Yeah. So maybe that was what drew me to it. I didn't do it for very long. Yeah. I met my husband. Um, I was working at a hair salon in Beverly Hills. I did graduate. I, I do have a cosmetology license in the right. state of California. <laughs> and I was working at a hair salon in Beverly Hills. And I was getting up really early in the morning to write. And, uh, and it sucks doing that. You know, it's a really draining job. It's a hard job 
doing hair. Yeah. And I just I thought it was going to be a good day job, you know, and it wasn't really. And uh, I also wasn't all that great at it. I was fine, I suppose. But you know, I really screwed up my husband's hair at this one point. <laughs> And he was not yet my husband. Was um, he? Was he your friends. client? Was he your client? No. Oh, okay. We met through friends. We met bowling. Oh, at a bowling party, yeah. And uh, and he said, you know what? This is this is not your thing. <laughs> <laughs> As he's like looking at a bald spot what? on the side of his head. I think I screwed up his color. You know, he's like, this this isn't your thing. Why don't you? why don't you go to graduate school? And uh, I said, well, you don't have to ask me twice. He's like, move in with me, go to graduate school. And uh, and that's what I did. Where'd you go? I went to Antioch. Oh, you did? Okay. LA. So yeah. MFA there. Did mm-hmm. you like it? I loved it. Yeah. I really loved it. I know there's always this like... MFAs are, should you get an MFA? Should you not get an MFA? Is it this whole racket? Is it... I loved it. I got so much, um, you know, I met not like a ton of people, but a couple of really strong core people um, who are friends who I still run drafts by. Sure. Um, well, you meet other writers. You're, mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're all in isolation. Right. It's a community. And and I had two mentors who are still my mentors who have really become like Mentors in the true sense of the word, and not just you know mentors in like the MFA ish sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're really you know artistically like guiding lights for me, and they also will still read my work. And um, so it's it was a very valuable experience for me. And it gave you time to work on the book. And it gave me time. Is that yeah. where you wrote some girls? Is that um, no? Actually, that is where I wrote pretty. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I wrote pretty before I wrote some girls, and they published them out of order. Oh, I gotcha. Yeah. So now, what are you working on now? Um, well, right now I'm on the publicity tour, oh, of so it, like into October I'll be doing that, and I'm doing a lot of like blogging and articles, and and uh, you know just doing some journalism. Um, but I will I'll be working on another memoir, and I'll, I'll probably also be working on my one woman show some more it's called mother tongue and i did it over the summer here in la but i, I think i want to expand it so what's the can you give me a hint about what the other memoir is about um you know my solo show was about uh my experience with infertility and my journey to adopt my son and i think that the new memoir will probably be along those lines i'm not sure exactly the angle um but it, it'll probably have a research component to it and a, a personal component. So now, as far as like the uh, the performing goes, you know, you do this one woman show. Do you have aspirations to be like a movie actress? <laughs> I, I, yes, I thought I'd be an actress. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm like forty. I've got tattoos <laughs> off to my eyeballs. That doesn't matter. Um, so every biker skank part <laughs> in Hollywood can be mine. Um, no, I don't. You know, I mean, I I'm sort of interested in in writing my own material and make and making movies. Possibly, I mean, I um, I like. That's the world we live in now, though. Yeah. You, you get a camera and you go make one. Like, all the equipment's there and it's accessible, and the price point isn't like yeah. exorbitant the way that it used to be. Yeah. I know you can do it. You know, it, it can definitely be done. And can I um, be an extra in one of your movies? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll be the poorly dressed young man in the back. 
sitting there with a receding hairline. It's getting bad. Sitting next to the biker's gang. Yeah. <laughs> You're there buying drugs from the That's biker's right. gang. I you can heard be my, about you can your be my drug dealer. habits. Yeah. I look unassuming. But, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I, I don't know. Sort of, I... I feel like I'm just a storyteller in, in whatever medium, and I'm interested in a lot of different mediums. Um, I'm not that interested in going in. I'm, I'm about to start going on auditions at this None point in my stuff. life. It's yeah. just not. But I love performing, and, and the show was really challenging. I did um, four different characters in the show, and I, I love doing the different characters and the fast transitions and the different accents and, and all that stuff is but really... But see, that's not normal for a writer. I mean, to have both of those parts of your artistic... Like, most writers are like the last thing in the world they'd want to do is stand up on stage in front of people and do accents. Yeah. But I feel like... I they, <laughs> but I feel like... I mean, there's some similarity because you're channeling characters and you're doing voices. I mean, it's just... It's unusual. It's unusual to have both. I think it is. I think it's... Un- I mean, I think... I know a lot of writers who have... Um, have some sort of performative, uh, and I think that's actually happening a lot more with this sort of like storytelling movement right now with with the moth and with various storytelling nights that are are really catching fire all over the place. The nervous breakdown that, literary experience. The nervous breakdown <laughs> literary experience, and um, I should do that. I should come. Yeah, we should. We have to get one together in yeah. Los Angeles. We've all been talking, but it's about syncing up schedules and. Getting the space and, you know. Yeah. It's on my list. Yeah. I feel sort of guilty. I know. What's I got to do, do one. I'm behind <laughs> the eight ball. I've just been busy, you know. LA is always like the last Well, and I place feel, I feel like there's got to be, I feel pressure when we do shows in LA because I feel like the audience that comes to a, a show like that in Los Angeles, like they're expecting to be entertained. Yeah. It's not just and, like. But they should be entertained. That's the thing. But, but, but beyond just the context of, I feel like there's got to be the music and it's got to be the show and there's got to be like witty banter. I mean, normal yeah. stuff, I guess, but I feel like maybe like a Seattle audience is like more receptive to just like four people reading. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess so. Maybe. I don't know. LA's a tough crowd yeah. for sure. But I mean, Seattle has an incredible theater community and people are accustomed to seeing theater there you know so i don't know yeah i think I just, people should be entertained if they're gonna if they're gonna go out like i just did my reading last night at book soup and i i had some friends come and um who are great like singer songwriters and they did a little thing and i'm like please i'm not gonna bore you right. come to my reading right. i swear i won't make you bored well but i feel like too like when it comes to like doing performance and doing multimedia stuff in addition to the book I feel like that's kind of the world we live in now, too, from the marketing and PR angle. Like, if you're an mm-hmm. author out there in this giant sea, or what feels like a giant sea of authors, or you're on the web and there's a million different, you know, not just writers, but musicians and movies, all trying to get people's attention. Right. To have a, a sort of, uh, you know, varied approach to reaching people seems like yeah. it might be a good thing to do. I don't know. I'm never sure. You know, sometimes I think that. I would do better to focus or not to spread myself so thin or not to have these like, oh, here's my website. You can look at my, and they're like, what do you do exactly? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Wait, are you, I thought you were a writer. What do you mean? Yeah. Um, but I've always had these two parts to me. Well, just do what you like. That's ultimately it. If you're into it and it's fun yeah. for you and it's, you know. I figure it, I'm half dead. Yeah. 
Just go, like, go make art. I got to just, yeah. <laughs> Clock is ticking. It is. Well, it's been uh, a great pleasure to talk with you. I wish you all the best with the novel. Thank uh, you. You can get Some Girls. It's in paperback now. Or they're both mm-hmm. in paperback. They're they? both paperback originals. Both paperback originals. So Some Girls, Jillian Lauren, and the new novel, Pretty, out where books are sold. Pick them up. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you, Brad. All right. Thanks for having me. Okay, everybody, that's it. That's the program. That's Jillian Lauren for the hour. You heard her. Go find her on the web at JillianLauren.com. If you want to follow her on Twitter, her Twitter handle is at JillyLauren, J-I-L-L-Y, Lauren. Uh, This show has a website. It's OtherPeoplePod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at OtherPeoplePod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. If you want to follow my personal Twitter feed, the show has a Facebook presence, And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. So how do I want to close? Well, what were we talking about at the front? I was talking about bad or good advice and how it can be unhelpful. I was talking about beauty and how certain people are beautiful and super talented and how that works. I was talking about what beauty might be like for a blind person. Not exactly sure how I got there. Uh, Kind of tangential, but of course, you know, also related. And, uh, you know... What I think I, I, I come to at the end of it all is the fact that when I drill down into this stuff, the further I go, the less I seem to understand. Uh, this is a, you know, a recurring theme for me. It's like the, the clarity of confusion. Why are people beautiful? What is beautiful? What does it even mean? Why is it important? I'm not even sure I know. It's a big question mark. There are a lot of things uh, you know, that confuse me. Here's something that confuses me. Talking to a buddy of mine earlier today, and he asks me that question for some we were talking about music and he throws that question at me what 10 albums would you bring with you if you were stranded on a desert island i hate questions like this uh this one in particular bothers me because if you're stranded on a desert island what good are a bunch of records going to do you you don't even have a record player that would actually be terrible it would be the worst thing in the world to have like an ipod that's out of juice and you're on this island alone and you know that you have like all these like great songs on your iPod, but you can't get to them. There's like books on tape. There's stuff, but there's podcasts. So I don't know. I never know how to answer that question. I don't understand the logic of it. And uh, you know what? I think you ultimately really want, if you're stranded on a desert island, is an instrument. Okay? That's what I think. I think you want some sort of instrument. If you had a guitar and you were stranded on a desert island for like three years, I think you would become Hendrix. I think you would become an absolute prodigy just by by necessity. It would have to happen. You would have nothing else to do. You would be self-taught. You would become proficient at a very high level. And, you know, if it's not a guitar, then, like, let's say you have, like, uh, you know, like some sort of, like, penny whistle or a a recorder, one of those things you used to play in elementary school. You would be just shredding on the recorder by the end of that experience. So that's all I got. I'm going to close there on that uh, on that note. How's that for a pun? Uh, I hope you enjoyed this. I certainly did. I will be back soon with another beautiful program just for you. <laughs>